This podcast contains adult language and graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, it's Kayla. It's Katie. And you're listening to Murder, Mayhem, and Merlot. Happy Women's History Month, Kayla. Oh, thank you. Happy Women's History Month to you, too. Thank you. (laughs) I thought that in celebration of such, (laughs) I would bring in a little women's history in the form of a female serial killer. Ooh. There's nothing like celebrating women's history. (laughs) Like It's an interesting way to do so. (laughs) And um, we haven't colored... We haven't colored them, you know? We haven't colored any women this month. (laughs) Oh, God, that's bad. That's bad. It is 11 o'clock at night. Actually, it's after 11. And I've worked all day, and I'm tired. (laughs) And this is the episode. So welcome, everyone, to a super late night recording of our podcast. But, yeah, I thought that this was a a good way to just share some women's history in, in the form of Belle Gunness, you know, Hell's Bell. Yes. The Black Widow of the Midwest. Heard a thing or two. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was high time that we covered a female serial killer or a female murderer in general, because we haven't done that yet. Well, you did. You did. Kind of. In the Lily Lid murders. Kind of. Oh, yeah. Kind of. In the very first episode. Yeah. I mean, it was. Yeah. They were involved. Women were involved. Well, young adult females were involved. But. I thought that this was a good way to just ring her in since it's the end of the month, you know? Let's go. Let's do this. And just a a precursor here. A lot of these people are Norwegian, and I got my education in Hawkins County, <laughs> which is not, you know, famous for being awesome education. So <laughs> you always like pick the episodes that have the hardest i do i I really i tell myself mentally i'm like you can figure this out and then i read it and i'm like no you can't you're stupid as hell like oh no it's that hawkins county education education baby (laughs) bell gunness infamous female serial killer Mm -hmm. in the midwest Uh, i'm sure a lot of you have heard of her and i'm sure a lot of you have not between 1884 and 1908 is when she was actively murdering people. She was a Norwegian immigrant, and she killed over 40 people in Chicago, Illinois, and Laporte, or Laporte, I'm going to say Laporte, Indiana, and she would profit off of insurance money claims off of these deaths. So let's just jump right into to her, because she's, yeah, well, she, she's a whole basket case. Belle was originally born Brynhild Paulsdatter. Storseth. That's a mouthful. It it is. Would have changed my name too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on November eleventh, eighteen fifty nine, in Selbu, Norway. 
She was the youngest of eight children. Wow. You know, they weren't really protecting themselves from anything back then. Oh, I know. That's, that was normal. And most of the time, you know, people back then, a lot of their children would die as infants or as young kids. Yeah. Or they would have a lot of miscarriages. <clears throat> Just not having the health care that we have today. So a lot of them would have several children. Yeah. Her father's name was Paul Pedersen Storseth, and her mother was Barrett Olstadter. They lived on a small farm in Inbiga, Norway. Belle was a physically large woman. She was five foot nine and she weighed over 200 pounds. So she wasn't, it's not like she was overweight. She was just a very stocky woman. So she was a pretty big lady. It's reported that she suffered a miscarriage when she was 18 years old after attending a dance in her town and a boy kicked her in the stomach there, which caused her to have a miscarriage. This boy reportedly came from a very wealthy family with a big farm in Norway, and so he was never charged with anything. That surprises me none. Yeah. You know, times haven't changed. <laughs> right. Afterwards, it was said that she was never the same, that her personality just changed. Something just kind of shut off in her after this happened. And later, this man died of none other than stomach cancer. Hmm. Yeah. Pretty interesting little little detail there. Boy, so, what comes around? Uh, karma. Yeah. It's a whole thing, baby. She then worked as a servant for the next few years, but in 1881, she followed one of her sisters to the U.S. and immigrated into the U.S. There, she took on the American name Belle Gunness. She moved to Chicago and again in Chicago worked as a servant for a little while. In 1884, Belle married a man named Mads Albert Sorensen, and they opened a candy store together in 1886, so a couple years after they got married. But the candy store was pretty unsuccessful. They had to close the candy store down. They weren't making any money. And just inexplicably, their house caught fire and burned down. Crazy. From this fire, they collected a pretty large sum of insurance money, and they bought a new home. Hmm. And as I stated before, you know, she's the queen of, this is crazy, someone died, insurance claim money. They had four children together. Caroline, Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. Caroline and Axel died as infants from acute colitis, which is, it can cause nausea, abdominal cramps, diarrhea, vomiting, a fever. And back then, those things just weren't very treatable. But these were also symptoms of poisoning. And when they died, she collected life insurance policies on both. So there you go. Here we are again, back with the insurance. On June the 13th, 1900, which feels really weird to say. The family was counted on the Chicago census, her as the mother of four children, only two living, and an adopted 10-year-old girl identified as Morgan Couch, but was later known as Jenny Olson. On June the 30th, 1900, Albert Sorensen died on the day, the one day that his two life insurance policies overlapped with one another. So if he died on this particular day, she collected both the insurance policies and got money from both of them. And this was the one time that this was going to happen. Yeah, I really don't think that's a coincidence. I, you know, I'm just feeling, just feeling. Accidents happen, Kayla. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. The first doctor that looked over him believed that he had died of strychnine poisoning. However, they had a family doctor that had previously treated Albert for an enlarged heart and concluded that this was the cause of death. No proper autopsy was ever done on Albert and his death was not ever seen as suspect. 
Albert's family demanded a deeper look into his death, but no charges were ever filed and there was no investigation ever done. And she was given $8,500, which in today's money would be about $305,000. So she got a pretty penny from her first husband's death. From this money, she bought a farm out in Laporte, Indiana. Shortly after she bought this plot of land and the home that was on it, there was a boat that was included in her purchase and carriage houses that were on the property that suddenly burned down. And so... She gets insurance money from that. I'm not, you know, detecting a pattern here or anything. No, no, not at all. There, she met a butcher named Peter Gunnis, also an immigrant from Norway, who had recently become a widower. And they got married on April the 1st, 1902. One week later, his infant daughter from his previous marriage died of an undetermined cause while alone in the house with Belle. And guess what they got? Life insurance. That'd be it. In December of 1902, Peter, so her second husband, had a tragic accident with a meat grinding machine after it toppled off the shelf above him and struck him in the head. Sure it did. Killing him. When the coroner viewed the body, he said, quote, this is a case of murder. One of Belle's children had also reportedly told a classmate in the following week that her mother had hit Peter in the head with a cleaver. The death was investigated, But Belle was so convincing when speaking to the police that she had them completely convinced that this was an accident and there were no charges filed. One year later, Peter's brother, Gust, took Peter's oldest daughter, Swanhild, to Wisconsin. She was the only child to survive living with Belle. Belle received $3,000 for Peter's death, which is about $107,000 today. Locals refused to believe Belle's story of Peter's death. And the district coroner reviewed the case and announced that Peter had in fact been murdered. He convened a coroner's jury to look into the case. And during this time, Belle never told anyone that she was pregnant, despite the sympathy that she might have gained from sharing this. No charges were ever filed. In May of 1903, Belle gave birth to her son, Philip, who had come from the butcher. In late 1906, Belle reported to the locals that her foster child had gone to a Lutheran college in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, Jenny's body would later be found buried on Belle's property. In 1907, she hired a farmhand named Ray Lampfear. It soon became obvious that the two were more than employer and employee. When Ray was at bars drinking or out on the town late at night, he would share the details of their sexual relationship. This was hard for locals to imagine due to her huge burly appearance and this harsh personality that this woman had. She would wear overalls all the time. She didn't dress like a woman in the early 1900s would. She butchered the animals at her own farm, which was almost unheard of for women in the early 1900s. You know, She wasn't conventional. No. You know, and in the early 1900s, she's supposed to be in the house cooking and doing nothing but popping out babies. So for her to be taking care of her own farm animals and she doesn't wear dresses and stuff around the town, they were like, oh, hell no. She was an anomaly. Yeah. They were like, oh, hell no. What's this? That's a man. (laughs) That's a man. She'd be illegal in Tennessee. (laughs) Don't get me started. (laughs) We love it here. We don't. Um, (laughs) At least the mountains are pretty. Anyway. If you call them that, they're more like hills, but... That's true. That's true. (laughs) 
Lampfear would soon prove to not be filling the voids that Belle needed to be filled in her life. She wanted more. Belle began putting advertisements in the Love Learn column of papers in large Midwestern cities. This was like a dating website in the newspaper, basically. It was very common for people back then to just put their loneliness out and writing on newspapers. It's funny how things change, but they stay the same. They do. We just put it on the internet now on a dating app. Right. Like, same stuff, different years. Yeah. <laughs> the Different articles... ways of communicating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the end goal is the same. One of the articles, as an example, read, quote, Personal, comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with a view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with a personal visit. Triflers need not apply. She was serious. She meant business. Yeah, she didn't want no trifling ass. No trifling ass man. Many middle-aged men would reach out to Belle after reading these ads. Belle was soon seen on carriage rides with different men on Sunday evenings dressed to the nines and her hair fixed in the latest of trends for the early 1900s much different than what the town was used to seeing her look like one of the first men to be seen with Belle was named john moe he was from elbow lake minnesota which is where my cousin lives now hey jackie <laughs> he brought more than one thousand dollars which would be $35,000 today. He brought it with him to pay her mortgage off in full. Belle introduced him as her cousin to the townspeople, though, and he disappeared within a week of his arrival to her farm. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I live for your sound effects during my episodes. <laughs> we need a button with Kayla sound effects. Next came George Anderson from Tarkio, Missouri. Tarkio? Tarkio? I don't know. Um, <laughs> George said that he would pay her mortgage off if they got married. George did go to the farm and he was staying nights over at the farm. But one night late in the middle of the night while he was asleep, George awoke to Belle standing over him with a candle in her hand staring at him in his eyes. He screamed, of course, like anybody else would have. And Belle just took off running out of the room without saying a single word to George. He felt terrified naturally, and believed that Belle was planning on killing him that night. He fled the farm, leaving every single one of his belongings that he had in that house there, and got on a train and went straight back to Missouri without uttering a single goodbye to anyone. He would later say that the look on Belle's face under that candlelight was nothing but pure evil and that she looked bloodthirsty. Not a good thing to wake up to in the middle of the night. Something we all have nightmares about. You know. Mm-mm. But the men just kept coming and never leaving. And they were never seen again. And, you know, no one caught on. I mean, the townspeople were like, Belle is literally built like a refrigerator. I am not fucking with her. <laughs> <laughs> this is sus, but no thank you. This woman was built like Mike Tyson in 1906. They're not even looking at her. <laughs> oh, no. We can talk shit. She was a horrible person. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Belle began ordering large trunks. She kept her curtains drawn constantly, and she pretty much kept to herself. Normal. Again, 
because the townspeople <laughs> didn't want to talk to a freaking refrigerator. So they were like, no, we're good. <laughs> One of the next men to arrive at Bell's farm was Ole B. B is his middle initial, Budsburg from Lola, Wisconsin. He was last seen alive at the Laporte Savings Bank on April the 6th in 1907. He mortgaged his Wisconsin land at the bank, signed over a deed, and withdrew several thousand dollars in cash. Budsburg's son hadn't the slightest idea where his father had gone, having no clue that he was going to some random woman's farm. When he found out where his father had gone, he wrote a letter to Belle. Belle responded to Budsburg's son, saying that she had never seen his father, didn't know who this kid was talking about. Several other men came and, again, never left the farm and were never seen again all throughout the year 1907. In December of 1907, Andrew Helgelian from Aberdeen, South Dakota, wrote to Belle, and from there they continued writing to one another for about a month. On January the 13th, 1908, Bell wrote an overwhelming letter to Andrew. It read, quote, To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person. And you I like better than anyone in the world, I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song, it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you. My Andrew, I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. And she was not lying about that last part. No, she would not. Damn, she could write a letter, though. She could write a letter. I mean, shit. We're lucky nowadays to get a good morning message. (laughs) I mean, back then. But she fucking meant that last part. (laughs) My heart beats in wild rapture for you? Prepare to stay forever. And ever and ever. Amen. And she meant it. She meant that shit. Andrew just could not with this letter. He instantly went to Belle's farm in January. (laughs) I mean, this man got the letter, packed his stuff, and was at the farm. He said, say less. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I don't know that I wouldn't react that way if I got a letter like that. (laughs) Right. You know? So he was like, okay. He brought a check written for the amount of $2,900, which would be around $109,000 today. And they went to the local bank and they deposited that check together. Because that's what you do when you're in love. You just write a damn check. First date, depositing this damn check. I mean, shit, I would go on that first date. Like, Hell yeah. I wouldn't kill you afterwards, but I'd go on that date. <laughs> now, Ray Lamphere, you know, her farmhand that they, you know, had had sexual relationship together. Right. He was super jealous of all of the men that Belle would have come to the farm. He did anything that Belle asked him to do, no matter how horrible or how hard the task was. And he had watched so many of these men come and go wherever they were going and never said a word to Bill about it, even though inside he was just filled with rage and jealousy. But when he was introduced to Andrew, he lost his mind. I don't know why this one just sent him over the edge, but it did. And it was the letter. Probably the letter. <laughs> he made a huge scene on Bell's farm and she fired him on February the 3rd. So it was probably within a week or two that Andrew arrived, he made the scene and she was like, okay, bye, Ray. He got fired on February the 3rd in 1908. 
Just a few days later, Andrew was also gone. Just gone. Yet Belle deposited an additional check for $1,200 into her account, written from Andrew. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd love if a dead person wrote me a check. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> After a couple of weeks, Belle went to the court over her recently fired employee, lovely Mr. Ray. She explained that he was not mentally stable and he was a hazard to the town. He wasn't mentally stable? He, Ray was just... Google. Got you. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Her words, so convincing, as she had convinced the police before, she convinced a judge this time. It ended in the authorities holding a sanity hearing for Ray, but he was announced to be of sane mind and he was released. In the following days, Belle returned to the court stating that Ray had come to her farm and threatened her. She told police that she wanted him charged with trespassing and that he was a danger to her family. Despite the arrest and charges filed against him by Belle, Ray would not stop going to the farm to plead with Belle. On one occasion, Ray told a neighbor, quote, Helgelian won't bother me no more. We fixed him for keeps. Poor little Andrew. I mean, it was in the letter, so she did say forever. She did. Andrew's brother, Als, would not live it down, however. Andrew's brother wrote to Belle asking her where Andrew was. Belle responded and said that Andrew was not at the farm and that she suspects that he went to see relatives in Norway. Oss responded saying he didn't believe that his brother Andrew would just up and run off to Norway without saying a single word to him about leaving, and that he believed that his brother was still in Laporte. Bell again responded saying that if he wanted to come look for his brother, he was more than welcome and that she would assist him in the search. Bell went to the office of lawyer M.E. Leliter, explaining that she feared her and her children's lives were in danger and that Ray had threatened to kill her and burn her house down and that she wanted to fill out a will just in case that that happened. She left her estate to her children, though she never reported this threat to the authorities. In February of 1908, Belle hired Joe Maxson to help with the farm, so not long after she had fired Ray. April 28, 1908, Maxson woke early one morning to the smell of smoke in his second-story bedroom. He opened his bedroom door to see the hallway covered with flames. He screamed for Belle or for one of her children or anyone else in the house or close to the house, but nobody answered. He didn't want to die in the fire, so he jumped from his second story window in nothing but his underwear and sprinted all the way to town, which I feel like is something that would happen around here. Just a man running, screaming fire in his undies down the road. Absolutely. When help arrived to the house, it was much too late. The house was on the ground smoldering at this point. Four bodies were found inside the charred house. The headless body of a grown woman and three children. County Sheriff Albert Smutzer was on the scene of the fire. He also had known about the threats that Bell had reported receiving from Ray Lampfear. The sheriff established that the fire was arson and a murder. He directed two deputies to search for the missing head of the adult female and two more to immediately arrest Ray. Ray denied any wrongdoing and having anything to do with the fire, though a neighbor of Bell's reported seeing Ray running down the road just minutes before the farmhouse was engulfed in flames. Ray was arrested and charged with murder. Investigators believe that the adult female body was that of Belle and her three children, Myrtle, who was 11, Lucy, who was nine, and her son, Philip, who was five. Nevertheless, there was a rumor that the headless body might not have been Belle. The female body in the fire was only about five foot three and around 125 pounds. Several of the townspeople saw the body and said that it was not even remotely possible 
that this was Belle. The local dentist was summoned by the sheriff for assistance looking at the bodies. The investigator sifted through the house's remains, and a piece of bridge work was found in the remains. The dentist stated that this piece was Bell's, and so the body was determined to be Bell's. Oz Helligan, so Andrew's brother, arrived in Laporte from South Dakota and told the sheriff that he believed his brother Andrew had been murdered by Bell. He explained that his brother had responded to an ad Bell had placed in a Norwegian paper. She had offered true love, marriage, and just a small payment of $1,000 to pay off her mortgage. He further explained that when Andrew left his home, that he had withdrawn his entire life savings and come to Bell's farm only to never be seen again. Alls was more convinced after he arrived at Bell's farm while watching investigators dig for the missing head, but instead they dug up eight men's watches, assorted bones, and human teeth. He began his own investigation right after he saw them dig this up and soon reported to investigators that they needed to begin digging in the hog pen. There they found the four bodies of adult men sliced apart and wrapped in oilcloth. Oh my God. Sadly, one of the bodies was his brother, Andrew. The farmhand, Joe Maxson, came forward to the police with more information. He stated that Bell had ordered him to bring wheelbarrows filled with dirt and loads to a large area surrounded by high wire fencing where the hogs were fed. He said that there were several depressions in the ground covered by dirt. Bell told Maxson that this was just buried trash and that she wanted him to make it level with the dirt. Similarly, several neighbors reported seeing Bell in the same spot digging with a shovel on multiple occasions. The sheriff took several men back to the farm and began digging. On May 9, 1908, the men uncovered the body of Jenny Olson, who was the foster child who had disappeared in 1906 that she said ran off to college. They found the small bodies of two unidentified children, followed by many more bodies in the hog pen. Some of the bodies found in the hog pen included Ole B. Budsberg of Iola, Wisconsin. He vanished in May of 1907. Thomas Lindbow had left Chicago and gone to work as a hired man for Gunnis three years earlier. Henry Gerhold of Scandinavia, Wisconsin, had gone to wed her a year earlier, taking $1,500 with him, a watch corresponding to one of those belonging to Gerhold was found when they were digging up the hog pen. Olaf Snevherud? I don't think I'm saying that right, but he was probably man. probably not. Probably but it's not. okay. But I'm trying here. He was from Chicago. John Moe of Elbow Lake, Minnesota. His watch was found in Lampfear's possession, so in Ray's possession, the um, first farmhand. Olaf Lindblom. He was 35 from Wisconsin. Benjamin Carling of Chicago, Illinois. He was last seen by his wife. Oof. In 1907, after telling her that he was going to Laporte to secure an investment with a wealthy widow. Hmm. He had with him $1,000 from an insurance company. His now widow was able to identify his remains from Laporte's pauper cemetery by the contour of his skull and his three missing teeth. Bell Gunnis's farm from hell would make headlines nationally. People made more reports to the police that their relatives had gone missing. Men who were widowers or bachelors, those of which who had responded to Bell's ads. Some suspected victims are Christy Hilkian of Dover, Wisconsin. He sold his farm and came to the port in 1906. Charles Neilberg, who is a 28-year-old Scandinavian immigrant living in Philadelphia, told his friends that he would visit Bell's farm in June of 1906, and he never returned. He took $500 with him. John H. McJunkin, he lived near Pittsburgh, left his wife in December of 1906 after corresponding 
with a wealthy widow in Laporte. Olaf Jensen, a Norwegian immigrant from Carroll, Indiana, wrote his relatives in 1906 saying that he would marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. Bert Chase of Indiana sold his butcher shop and told friends of a wealthy widow that he was going to look up. His brother received a telegram from him, supposedly from Aberdeen, South Dakota, claiming Bert had been killed in a train wreck. His brother kind of did a little investigating of his own and found that the telegram was a fake. So Bell probably wrote that. A hired man named George Bradley of Tuscola, Illinois, is alleged to have gone to Laporte to meet a widow and three children in October of 1907. So that was definitely probably Bill, a widow and three kids. T.J. Tiefland of Minneapolis is alleged to have come to see Gunnison in 1907. Frank Riddinger, a farmer in Wisconsin, came to Indiana in 1907 to marry a widow and never returned. Emil Tell, a Sweden man from Kansas City, Missouri, is alleged to have gone to Laporte in 1907. Lee Porter, John E. Hunter... Good God. And his daughters, Abram Phillips, a daughter of a woman named Mrs. H. Witzer, an unknown man and woman who alleged to have disappeared in Gunnis's farm in 1906, the brother of Miss Jenny Graham, a hired man from Ohio who was 50 years old and we don't know his name to this day, and another unnamed man from Montana. She's got a very, very long list. Just the amount of people that she was able to get to just, like, flip their lives upside down she was, at the prospect of marrying her. It just blows my mind. She was a she was a wonderful bit, con woman. Yeah, she's a con artist for she, sure. But, I mean, like, good God. She, and I don't get, like, the, the enticement with her. I mean, they, I mean, it was, you know letters and, and shit they didn't know like what yeah, but she... then you look at this woman like i would have showed up to the farm and been like never mind okay sure but they may not you know have the chance to leave they, the farm they were <laughs> staying the night when when i explained to you how she killed them like most of them were staying the night right and they so they had been there and... for a few days and they would yeah. stay the night on her farm for a few days and then she was like <laughs> i'm gonna take you out and take your money like I just, I just would have looked at her and ran away. I'm like, ain't no Shrek ogre gonna get me. Ain't no way. <laughs> Which they don't have Shrek in, you know, 1906. But unfortunately, yeah. I mean, pretty good comparison there. Sadly, almost all of the remains on the farm were never identified. 14 of the victims' bodies were able to be named from bones being put together, teeth, clothing, and the watches that they found. So, is it safe to say that we really don't know the number of victims? she had we really don't the estimate is over 40 right but we really don't have anything but other it could than, be a lot more than that it could be honestly it could be because and she had no i mean she had a victimology but still you know she would kill these men's children that they came with yeah. babies her own kids she killed everybody any chance to get a little money she would kill them yeah the number of Bell's victims is estimated to be more than 40, but we're unsure. On May 22, 1908, Ray Lamphere was tried for the murder and arson charges for Bell and her remaining three children. He pled not guilty to all of the charges and any wrongdoing. His lawyer's key point of defense was that the female adult body found in the charred house's remains was not that of Bell Gunness. The lawyer's name was Wirt Warden. He tried to prove the point that the bridgework found in the house was planted there by Bell. 
Lamphere, unfortunately, was found guilty of arson, but he was acquitted on the murder charges. On November 26, 1909, Ray Lamphere was sentenced to 21 years in prison in Michigan City, Indiana. He later died that year on December 30th in prison of tuberculosis. A little over a month later, a priest who had been having confessions with Ray while he was in prison came forward with the information that was shared in the confessions. I guess them calling it confessions, I guess that it was a Catholic priest. And that's like against their rules. Like you're not supposed to share the confessions. I wonder, you know, you can weigh in, comment on our social media, but I wonder if it's a lot like like therapy where client privilege. So like... They're not good. Like a psychiatrist won't say anything about what you tell them unless you literally admit to harming someone. Right. Do you get you get what yeah. I mean? Like there, there's a limit to that. Or if you like threaten somebody's life, they're gonna they're they're gonna say something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I wonder if there's like a limit to what priests are not gonna say i don't i don't know like i know that they're not supposed to share you know they're not supposed to tell who if they know who Mm -hmm. which obviously in this case he would because he's in prison and they're not going to give him the privacy that you would have if you walked into a catholic church and you've got the screen between you but i don't know i mean i was i was with a, a guy whose family was catholic but like he he wasn't really like a practicing catholic yeah i don't think i don't know I just, I would just wonder if there's like a limit to what they, you know, won't say. Yeah. So I don't, I don't. And know. do you get what I mean? Like with, with like, if you're in therapy, right? You, you get that. You don't say anything unless it's like you're like, I'm gonna harm this, you know, I'm gonna kill this person. Something dangerous. They, yeah. they're obligated to obviously say something. Yeah, to say something at that point. Yeah. So the priest, when he shared this information, he said that Ray knew of Bell's crimes and that she was still alive. He also stated that Ray was adamant that he never murdered anyone in his life, not even helping Belle when he was working at the farm, but that he had helped Belle bury many of the victims in the hog pen. When men would come to the farm, Belle charmed them and seduced them. She would then poison the men and usually split their heads open with a meat cleaver. Occasionally, Belle would wait for the men to be asleep in their beds and use chloroform on the sleeping men and then strike them. Belle, in her 40s during most of the murders, would carry the men's bodies by herself to the basement. She's carrying grown-ass men to her basement by herself, where she would often dismember the bodies and then bury them in the hog pens. Sometimes she would chop up the bodies and put them in a hog scalding vat. If anybody knows what that is, Please let me know. A part of me doesn't want to know, to be honest. I just don't, I, like what is I that? could go my whole life without knowing what, what that is. is. That? I don't. I don't know, and I really, <laughs> really don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, I do. I want to know. Someone, please tell me. <laughs> I grew up in the suburbs. I didn't. I didn't live on a farm. Tell me what that is. <laughs> and after she would put them in this vat, she would then cover them with lime. But Ray reported that if she was too tired to do any of those things. She just, she's too tired. Right, I mean, it's tiring. She would just chop them up and feed them to the hogs. Okay. Yeah. She's just too tired. Yeah, right. Lampfear further explained to the priest that he had an idea as to who the headless woman was in the fire. 
He said that Belle had lured a woman from her farm in Chicago, saying that she would hire her as her housekeeper with very high pay. Ray said Belle drugged the woman and smashed in her skull. Once she was dead, Belle decapitated her, tied weights to the head, and threw it in the swamp. Belle then dressed the body in her own clothing and placed her bridge next to the body so it would look like it was her. Ray said she smothered her children to death and carried them to the basement one by one and then laid them with the Chicago woman's body. She then set the house on fire and bolted. Allegedly, Ray was supposed to meet Belle at a pre-designated place after the fire was set. Ray waited, but Belle never showed up. Instead, Belle ran through a field and into the woods. How that information was gathered that she ran through a field and into the woods, I don't know. Yeah, like, how do you know that, Ray? Yeah, how do, how do you know that? Why didn't you tell anybody this before yeah. they put you in prison for burning the house down, if you knew? Why didn't you tell anybody, man? Mm-hmm. You could have gotten yourself out of prison. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ray said that Bell had become very wealthy over the past few years. He said Bell had killed 42 men, women, and children. She had taken money from almost every single one, ranging from $1,000 to $32,000. When Bell's house burned down, she made around $250,000 in her murder plots. So she, in today's money, would have around $8.175 million. This woman was rich. <laughs> I have no words. Anything for a dollar for Miss Bell. I mean... Anything for a dollar. So I wonder if he was just, like, in contact with her. Possibly. Like, if they were writing letters or something while he was in jail, and that's how he knew all that. I mean, they only had a few months. But, I mean, they had set a place to meet. Right. I mean, I get, like, all the previous murders, but about, like, her... Running through a field and all that good stuff. stuff. And then, like, the thing she did, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. After this information was shared with the authorities, they decided to look into her bank accounts. What they found was almost every penny that she had had been withdrawn just before the fire. That's not, you know, suspicious no. or, or anything. Everything was taken out of her bank accounts except a very small amount of money that was left in one of her savings accounts. They now believed Ray, and they believed that Belle had managed to escape justice. So now they were like, well, damn, we suck. I mean, I really wouldn't put it past her. She was a really... She was... A really good con artist. She was. I mean, good doesn't even... Like, that's an understatement. And it does not surprise me in the least. She had these police believing that she... That the body in this fire, this five foot three body, 120 pounds soaking wet, was her. Yeah. They really thought this was her. I know. Like, that's just not... I don't know. It doesn't surprise me, really. It, It doesn't. I mean... Along with how cunning she was and how dumb these police were, (laughs) like, I hate to say that, but you really thought that this teeny tiny body was this woman built like a refrigerator. You really thought. Really? I mean, I don't, I don't, I literally don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Over the following years, there were so many sightings of Belle Gunness. She was reported being seen alive in 1931 in Mississippi, where she owned a large farm and was known as a renowned citizen of the town. Another report in 1931 said that she may have been going by the name Esther Carlson, who was arrested in L.A. for poisoning a Norwegian immigrant named August Lindstrom. Two individuals that knew her said that she was identical to the photographs of Belle Gunness, 
though Esther Carlson died while awaiting trial on May the 6th in 1931. I mean, that fits her. Yeah. The poisoning of a man. He was a Norwegian immigrant. A lot of these men were immigrants from, a lot of them from Norway. Yeah, or Sweden. Yeah. So, I mean, that fits. Mm -hmm. From the fire, Belle's three children were positively identified as themselves, but the headless woman has never been identified. Not ever knowing if this body was that of Belle, in the case that it was, the body was buried next to Belle's first husband, Mad Mad Sorensen, at First Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. On November the 5th, 2007, descendants of one of Belle's sisters approved for anthropologists and students from the University of Indianapolis to exhume the body in hopes that there could be a positive identification. The body was exhumed, but no DNA could be recovered from the body. There was an envelope flap that was still in evidence that contained some DNA from Belle Gunness. Sadly, there was not a sufficient amount of DNA in the mystery of whether or not she died in the fire or got away is still unsolved. I'm just calling it she didn't. Yeah, I don't think she died in the fire. No. No. I don't think she died in that fire. Nope. I I think that she was Esther. Oh, yeah. I think that that's who, she, that, mm-hmm. I think it was her. Could they, I wonder if they could exhume her body. I wish they would. Or something. You know, I wonder if that's been done. Because. So what do you think? Be, you know, whether she was Esther or not, like we could go back and forth on that. I think it was, but. She didn't die in that fire. That had her written all over it. So, yeah. Uh, I don't think Ray is innocent by any means. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he deserved to be in jail. But I think also that he was manipulated by this woman. And, yeah, I think uh, she, she she was something. She, she was a true woman of her art which was con and murder she yeah. she she was good she was good at what she was doing it was horrible shit but she was good at it yeah i mean and i think that's why her victim count is so high and no one probably suspected it or expected it no not from a woman in the early 1900s no. i mean i you're mean not... even even then like for me, you know, you heard of some, I mean, serial killer wasn't, that term really no, wasn't a wasn't thing. No, it wasn't even a thing. Even though you had him every now and then, you mean, and there was Jack the Ripper and, mm-hmm. you know, and all that before, before that time even, but you still didn't hear the term. And so even for a woman, like for a woman, that was not. I know they, they probably, I mean, just to hear the reactions, there was one article that I read where the townspeople had commented on her lifting up these wooden totes. And they were saying things like, she lifted it up like it was a pillow. I mean, they were just shocked that this woman could pick up boxes. (laughs) Let alone pick up a man and put him in a basement. And take him down to the basement and cut him up and feed him to her pigs. But, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, she was something though. She, yeah, like I, I, I've heard of her. You know, obviously she's. I feel like she's pretty infamous, but maybe that's. I heard of her the first time on Bailey Sarian's video that she did about her. Yeah, and I was like, well, I just what a lady. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know all those little details. Though. I didn't that's either. Wild, but I figured, and 
I didn't know her body count either. Yeah, I didn't remember her body count. I really just remembered from Bailey's video. She was a woman, early 1900s. She killed men for money. Yeah. But I didn't know all hmm. this extra stuff. But it was it was pretty wild. Interesting case to yeah, dive into. It, yeah, it was. Yeah, thanks. I was surprised at the amount of information that we had on a case from the early 1900s. I mean, yeah. But I was glad to to have a good amount to look over. Well, that was good. Thanks. Welcome. Hope everyone enjoys their little woman history lesson that I gave you for <laughs> Women's History Month. Yeah, what a what a lesson. <laughs> Don't be like Belle. <laughs> if you want money, hustle. Not in that way. Just rob a bank. No, <laughs> you all time <laughs> on here. Encouraging people, <laughs> don't rob a bank. Hustle legally. Rob a convenience store. Oh my god! <laughs> Just kidding. Don't commit crimes. No, don't don't do that. <laughs> Hustle, but you know, and don't feed your boyfriends to your pigs. That's real bad. Definitely don't do that. Anyways, thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. All of the sources we used for this episode will be linked in our show notes. We'd like to thank Mikey Kinley for audio and editing and our friend Avalyn Yulaberry for our cover art. Make sure to like and follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Our Instagram is m three podcast and you can find us on facebook under the name of our podcast which is murder mayhem and merlot 